Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to uh, James chapter 5, as we finish off the book of James. If you're new with us, we preach through books of the Bible here, just section by section, um, so you can kind of learn everything within its context and make sure that what I'm saying is coming from the text. I'm excited about the men's Bible study next weekend, by the way. Men, if you haven't signed up or you forgot or you put yourself on the list but didn't sign up online, you know, make sure you double-check on that. And there's still a few spots left. I want to make sure everybody gets to come. We're going to have a great weekend. Uh, Dan Bidwell is going to be coming up from Napa. He's actually over from Australia. He's a fantastic Bible teacher. So love to have you here this next weekend or up at the camp for men's, uh, men's retreat. Talk to me also well, as well if you think you need a, a scholarship or something like that. We can work that out. James chapter 5. Actually, we're going to be starting at verse 13, uh, 13 uh, this morning. But I, I want us to start, actually, uh, by looking at the last verse of our text, or the last verse is, which is the end of the, of the letter. Look at verse 19 and 20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is what James has been trying to do throughout this whole book. He's been calling back his wandering brothers and sisters, trying to, to save them. You see, if you've been with us for the series, you know that many in this little church, and, and the churches, these Hebrew churches, had wandered away into uh, double-mindedness, or what James calls uh, twin-souledness. We see that back at the very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 8. It's that deformed spiritual condition where although you love Christ and have given him your life, you still find yourself living like and for the world. You have this inconsistent split in your life. Kind of one foot in the world and trying to, and trying to have one foot on Christ and you're, you're unstable, James says, because of it. Your faith and your actions don't match. Your words and your deeds are actually inconsistent. Your religious life and your daily life don't harmonize. You see, these Christians had started out well here. But then struggles and suffering and very real persecution had come to their lives. They'd literally been scattered. They'd been persecuted by uh, their Jewish brothers and sisters and scattered out, lost their homes, ended up in poverty, many, many of them. And they've sort of, in the midst of it, many of them defaulted back to their old worldly reliances and ways, trusting in, in wealth and status, at least people of wealth and status. We see them doing that right in the church living for self-protection and self-promotion, that, that wisdom of the world, finding comfort in, in sensual pleasures rather than comfort in the Lord. At least, this is where they put one foot, right? 
They had that split tension in their life. Think of, uh, have you ever seen, you ever, you know, been on a dock and you put one foot out on the boat and the boat starts to move? It's not the most stable place to be and eventually it's going to lead to disaster. And James finally says to them in chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Draw near, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is saying this is a very disastrous way to live. It will lead to destruction. And he's been calling them back to a singular devotion to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 2, where he talks about being mature and complete, not lacking anything, fully grown up, integrated believers. That's his, his massive goal for them, where faith and life actually match up. And as we've gone through this book over the summer, he's taken them through all these areas of life and challenged them to be singularly, singularly devoted. Challenged them in their thinking about wealth. He's challenging them in, the, in, their, in their practice of religion where they say they're religious, but they don't care for the orphans and widows. No, it's not right. Don't be double-minded. He's challenging them in, in their use of words, speaking about loving each other and loving God, but then ripping each other up and grumbling against one another. No, don't be double-minded. He's challenged them in, in their thinking about the future and their planning. Planning with eternity in mind, not just this little world. He's challenged them in how their faith relates to the works of their life. And it's been challenging for us as well. And actually, as we looked at it, it began to get uh, a little bit overwhelming. James doesn't cut them or us any slack. He, he's a, a get-to-it, get-it-done kind of guy. Live your faith. And it's pretty, pretty challenging. You get to the end of this book, and to be honest, you can feel pretty burdened and, and weary. Especially if you get to the end of it, and after all this clarity and teaching, you feel like, I'm still double-minded. I still find myself split. And you just feel this weight but I want us to notice how James ends this letter. What is he in with? This whole section, what is it about? It's got a label at the top of it. makes it easy for us. Yes, it's about prayer. And it's not just because it's labeled that way. Look at it for a second. I want to quickly notice that prayer is in every verse. Let's read it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's verse 13. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders and let them pray. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with the nature like ours and he prayed. Verse 18. Then he prayed again. Every single sentence is about prayer. This book was full all the way through of do this, do that, 
work on this, don't do that, do more of this, but it ends with pray, 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 pray. This entire concluding section is an exhortation to pray. Because what James is challenging us to in this book, this steadfast, singular devotion to Christ in our lives, can only be done through complete dependence on our Lord and Savior. It can only be done in Him. And by the way, that's how he started the book as well. If you notice, he's ending as he started. He started with, if you're suffering, pray. And he ends with, if you're suffering and struggling, pray. Now, as James instructs them how to pray here, he basically says three things. First, he says their prayers should be pervasive in verses 13 to 15. In verse 13 to 15, James explains how they should be praying in just about every circumstance of life. Prayer should pervade their lives. Life's full of ups and downs, the good, the bad, and ugly. But in all of these, James says, they should be praying. There is no circumstance in our lives where prayer is not relevant, right, and needed. No circumstance. And he gives them three circumstances I think kind of cover everything. First, he starts with something very familiar to them. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. This is the one that seems obvious. You think, well, of course, you know, when you're suffering, hard times come. We kind of cry out to God. We pray. But that's not necessarily true. Often when suffering comes, people turn away from God in disappointment and bitterness and anger. I, I see it all the time as a pastor. A loved one dies and there's, there's anger. How could God let this happen? He, he or she was a good person. And, and there's a retreating from God rather than a moving towards him in prayer. A disease strikes, and there's a disappointment. Where, where was God? Where is he in this? Doesn't he care? And, and there's a bitterness. I don't deserve this. And we close off. And if prayers do come, often, as James points out in chapter 1, they become duplicitous and, and, and double-minded, attempts to just manipulate and control God rather than accept his sovereign will and what, we're trying, what he's trying to teach us in the situations. And such prayers, James says, are not even real prayers. And they're not even heard by God or responded to. No, when suffering comes, he says, pray, really pray. Bring your pain and sorrow before our great high priest who can empathize like no other the one who entered into this world and entered into our life of suffering and pain so that he could take it for eternity. The one who now sits in heaven advocating for us. You know, there's no other God, like there's no other religion that has a God like this that enters into our pain to bring it into it. And James says, bring it to him. And James even says to specifically pray for wisdom from above 
that will trust God and his sovereignty in the suffering times. And I have to say, as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about our church, that uh, I've seen really great models of this here. People faithfully praying through really hard stuff. Physical ailments and relational turmoil, life's traumas, emotional struggles. Brothers and sisters here at CTR really do come together and pray through these things. And it's encouraging. And it's powerful. And if you don't know this kind of prayer in your life, dig in here. Get into a small group. You'll find people praying through their sufferings together, remaining steadfast under trial, comforting and bolstering each other. And I know it's been incredibly encouraging to me. But James doesn't just talk about suffering. He goes on to a second circumstances stands for prayer. He says in verse 13 as well, let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now, cheerfulness doesn't mean uh, that life is going perfect. doesn't mean, oh, okay, you have suffering in your life, and then when your life is perfect, pray as well. No, cheerfulness is, is basically that you're happy even in the midst of whatever's going on. You know, you have those days when you get up and, and life is still there. You have to go to work. Your teenager still is mad at you. Your pool heater is still not working. This is a little about me. And everybody on the news is telling you awful news, but you still feel good that day. For whatever reason, you feel good. You're at peace. You still can see the good things. You're cheerful. And James says, hey, in those times, guess what? You should pray. You should praise God. You should lift up praises, sing praises, prayers to our God. Of course we should, because James says, remember, he said it earlier, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Everything good is from him. I think too often when we feel good, we just assume on it, right? We're, you know, we just, I guess I just feel good and I earned it or something. How are you doing with praising God in the good times? Now, finally, James mentions one more circumstance for prayer that he kind of zooms in on and teases out in some detail. You can tell this is where he really wants to focus. That's verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I have to say, this is actually a very, uh, excuse me, kind of controversial text, actually a very abused controversial text. 
It's used by every uh, faith healing ministry out there to prop up the idea that if you just have enough faith and you pray, God will bring physical healing and restoration. It's used by uh, the Catholic Church to support their theology of extreme unction, whereby a priest prays kind of last rites over a dying person to assure their salvation. Now, what I want to say about this this morning, I will admit, is also kind of controversial. And that's because I'm going to say that this is not actually about physical sickness. That's not what they're talking about here. What James is talking about here, I think, is a spiritual sickness. Some might call it a soul sickness. It's not to say that we shouldn't pray for physical ailments, that we shouldn't pray for healing. God can and does heal, and we pray for those things here at this church The elders will be happy to come and pray over you for physical healing. Of course our God can do that. But that is not what this text is speaking about specifically. It's about spiritual sickness. And I'm going to give us four reasons that we should read it that way. First of all, the actual words that James uses. So, look at the word sick in the text. uh, We see it first in verse 14. If anyone among you is sick. Now, in the Greek, that word is weak. It's the word weak. And it can be translated by context. It could be, you know, weak physically or weak spiritually. You just have to look at the context. But it's the word weak. And the second occurrence of the word sick in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That word is a different word, and it's the word that's translated almost every time as weary. In fact, when it's used in the New Testament, it's actually only used one other place, this exact word. It's Hebrews 12.3. It's only like two pages back if you want to look at it, two or three in your Bibles. Hebrews 12.3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary that's the word, or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. It is a spiritual weariness. Okay? And even when weary comes up four other times in the New Testament, it's always a spiritual weariness. Next, there's the word save in verse 15. Right? So he says, uh, if anyone's prayer is sick and the Lord will raise him up, let's see, uh, Sins, Lord, therefore confess your sins. Where's the word save? There it is. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Okay, save. Again, it's the word save, sozo in Greek. Could mean, you know, heal. Sometimes it's used that way. Save somebody from their physical ailment. Or it could mean salvation. Save someone from their sin. It's always the context in which it is used. So, James uses it four times in this book, and every time it clearly refers to spiritual salvation, including the last verse of our text. Look at verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Clearly spiritual. 
And of course, if you look at the second half of verse 15 where it's using this, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Very spiritual language. Now, some will argue, well, look at this idea of anointing with oil. Clearly in those days when uh, it was a medicinal thing, when people were sick, they would anoint them with oil. Uh, had all kinds of different uses for oil in healing. It's very true. But in Scripture, you want to look up the word anointed, you're going to find a few references to oil maybe being used that way, and you're going to find 78 references to being used spiritually. People were anointed with oil in consecration to symbolically demonstrate that we're set apart for special service to God. Now, most, almost most importantly, there's one thing that's even more, but the context, right? The context always uh, defines things for us. Not only is the immediate context just before our text in verses 7 through 11, which Jay preached about, uh, is it, it's about a growing spiritual weariness as believers are called to be patient in suffering and stand fast. So just before, that whole section, patience in suffering. And then, verse 20, just after the section, is talking about what? Wandering away from the truth. The contextual issue is weariness and wandering of souls. And the context of the whole book, the theme is what? That spiritual ailment of double-mindedness. How they're strained from a singular devotion to God. James is wrapping back to that main issue of that sickness of double-mindedness. If you're not convinced, I think the clincher is the illustration that he uses of Elijah here. Right? If he wanted to use an illustration from Elijah's life, that would illustrate just the power of, over, uh, of God has over fit for physical healing. Why wouldn't he use the widow of Zareph story where he raises uh, the, the uh, Zareph's son from the dead? Her dead, her dead child? That would be the perfect demonstration. But he uses this story that we had read uh, about God versus Baal in competition, right, to light an altar by fire. If you know anything about the Baal, their understanding of that God is that he was like the God of lightning, so you think he would have, you know, a little advantage in, in lighting this uh, altar. Now, it's a, I had the whole story read because it's such a great story, but, you know, James wants us to see, right? The one altar is set up. Oh, let me turn back to the story. I gotta read the first verse of it, it's so crucial. And I gotta put my glasses on to do it. This is how it starts, that story. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. What's the issue? Double-mindedness. They're trying to follow both God and Baal. 
That's the issue. This is why James uses this illustration. And of course, then he has them set up two altars and, you know, they can't get, they, they cry out to Baal and nothing's happening. And he mocks them, you know, is God, you know, is, is Baal relieving himself? I mean, it's pretty mocking stuff. And then they cut themselves and they, da- and they can't get Baal to do anything. And then he says, hey, let's set up our altar and let's put 12 buckets of water on it. So much so that it fills a trench with water around it. And then God strikes that altar to, with lightning and it comes to fire and they know who's really God. And the rains return, which he had called off, by the way. The point is very clear for James and the listeners and us. And that is that prayer and faith for the spiritually weary among you, those caught in double-mindedness, is powerful. It will save them. God will raise them up just as he did. It's powerful when Elijah prayed. My friends, there is no doubt in my mind that James is speaking about spiritual sickness here. He's saying if anyone among you is spiritually weary, they're struggling with double-mindedness, then pray. Pray when you're suffering. Pray when you're cheerful. Pray especially when you're spiritually sick, worn out in your soul from your wanderings, from your double-mindedness. Call for the elders. It's crucial. We, we, we spend so much time praying for physical things, don't we? I mean, just listen to the requests in small group. You get everything from chest colds, which I had all week, by the way, and you can pray for me, <laughs> to grown in toenails and surgeries and cancers for people and pets. And we should pray for such things, by the way. It's great to pray for those things. Of course, God can heal. But where is the soul prayer? Where is the prayer for our spiritual ailments? Prayer about my tendency to put one foot over on my finances and investments to really feel secure. Prayer about how I tend to slide into lust and sensuality to find some comfort when struggling. Prayer about that unhealthy or immoral relationship that had become this idolatrous fixation in my life. Prayer for those amongst us us who are wandering in their double-mindedness into idolatries and thinking it's okay because they compartmentalize their lives. Remember verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you is wandering from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. These are the kinds of prayers we need to be about. Spiritually restorative prayers, bringing each other back intercession. Which brings me to point two. Yeah, point one was definitely the longest. (laughs) Verse 16. Therefore, confess 
your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Therefore, there's the big therefore in the text. You see, our prayer is not supposed to just be pervasive. It's supposed to be communal. Everybody involved. Confess your sins to one another. Yes, the elders may be called in in times, but the responsibility falls on everybody. This is how you know this text isn't about some you know, special priestly unction or, or special faith healing gift. No, this is for everybody to be part of. We're to be a community that knows and cares for each other in such a way that there's an honesty with each other and a confession and a sharing in our struggles. We can't pray for real soul issues if we don't know each other and there's not real honesty. We can't know this kind of healing if we can't pray, you know, with that integrity that actually knows. It doesn't have to be in a large group. You don't have to stand up here and confess before all of us. Please don't. It could be in a prayer triplet. It could be in a one-on-one. It could be in a small group. We need to have those kind of relationships, though, where we can have the one another prayer. We're called to it. Real, honest, this is what's going on in my soul prayer. Is this happening in your life? High schoolers, is this happening in your life? Is this happening in youth group? Young adults, where is it happening? The rest of us, do we have this kind of prayer going on? Are we involved? Are we praying like this for others? Are we being prayed for? It's what we're trying to facilitate here with our small groups, with our men's retreats and our women's retreats. Trying to facilitate real soul care. Now there's uh, something we, we need to note. One more thing. That's point three. We see it uh, in uh, verse... 16, starting there at least. Let's take a look. In the second sentence of 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth, and then he did the whole Baal thing with him, and then he prayed again, And the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What's the point? Well, although Elijah was just a man like us, his prayers were massively powerful. My friends, our prayers are to be pervasive across the good and the bad, the suffering and the cheer. There be communal, everybody involved. And these prayers will be powerful. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Now, I know when I first heard that verse, I was like, yeah, well, I'm not a righteous person, so. 
Neither was Elijah. But we are in Christ, my friends, the righteous one. We have the righteousness of Christ. Believers, we can pray and have with the same power as Elijah. Because it's Christ's power. We've been made righteous. And thus the power that, that, that we see in that incredible story is right there. It's just as real and accessible for us. And we need to believe this. We need to pray. We need to pray as a community. We need to pray for our struggling, weary, sick souls to the one who said, I came to save not the healthy, but the sick. And he was talking spiritually sick. The one who said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we are so double-minded. In our sinfulness, we struggle. We wander. And Lord, we thank you that not only you have, have you given us a community, community to pray together in, but you've given us the righteousness of your Son to pray through. We pray for healing in this church, the healing that, that matters for eternity, that soul healing. We pray for each one of us, and you know the hearts today, and you know where they're at, that you would be drawing us back to a singular devotion to you, Lord, that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, your children. Amen.